Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one. This is RTE Radio 1. With Bloomsday budding, our thoughts turn to Joyce. RTE is delighted to announce that all 29 and three quarter hours of Ulysses will be broadcast again on Bloomsday on RTE Radio 1 Extra. And as a further treat, Drama on One will also be uploading the 15 stories from Dubliners to the RTE website. Tonight, we're going to broadcast two stories from Dubliners, The Sisters and An Encounter, as performed by the RTE rep. In the opening story of Dubliners, Patrick Dawson, as Stephen Dedalus, tells us of a secret and sacred accident in the past that unsettles an old priest's mind. This is The Sisters. There was no hope for him this time. It was the third stroke. Night after night I had passed the house, it was vacation time, and studied the lighted square of window. And night after night I had found it lighted in the same way, faintly and evenly. If he was dead, I thought, I would see the reflection of candles on the darkened blind, for I knew that two candles must be set at the head of a corpse. He had often said to me, I am not long for this world. And I had thought his words idle. Now I knew they were true. Every night as I gazed up at the window, I said softly to myself the word paralysis. It had always sounded strangely in my ears, like the word nomen in the Euclid and the word simony in the Catechism. But now it sounded to me like the name of some maleficent and sinful being. It filled me with fear, and yet I longed to be nearer to it and to look upon its deadly work. Old Cotter was sitting at the fire smoking when I came downstairs to supper. While my aunt was ladling out my stirabout, he said, as if returning to some former remark of his, No, I wouldn't say he was exactly, but there was something queer. There was something uncanny about him. I'll tell you my opinion. He began to puff at his pipe, no doubt arranging his opinion in his mind. Tiresome old fool. When we knew him first, he used to be rather interesting, talking of faints and worms. But I soon grew tired of him and his endless stories about the distillery. I have my own theory about it, he said. I think it was one of those peculiar cases, but it's hard to say. He began to puff again at his pipe without giving us his theory. My uncle saw me staring and said to me, Well, so your old friend is gone, you'll be sorry to hear. Who? said I. Father Flynn. Is he dead? Mr. Cotter here has just told us. He was passing by the house. I knew that I was under observation, so I continued eating as if the news had not interested me. My uncle explained to old Cotter. The youngster and he were great friends. The old chap taught him a great deal, mind you, and they say he had a great wish for him. God have mercy on his soul, said my aunt piously. Old Cotter looked at me for a while. I felt that his little beady black eyes were examining me, but I would not satisfy him by looking up from my plate. He returned to his pipe and finally spat rudely into the grate. 
I wouldn't like children of mine, he said, to have too much to say to a man like that. How do you mean, Mr Cotter? asked my aunt. What I mean is, said old Cotter, it's bad for children. My idea is, let a young lad run about and play with young lads of his own age and not be... Am I right, Jack? That's my principle too, said my uncle. Let him learn to box his corner. That's what I'm always saying to that Rosicrucian there. Take exercise. Why, when I was a nipper every morning of my life, I had a cold bath, winter and summer. That's what stands to me now. Education is all very fine and large. Uh, Mr Cotter might take a pick at that leg of mutton. He added to my aunt. No, no, not for me, said old Cotter. My aunt brought the dish from the safe and laid it on the table. But why do you think it's not good for children, Mr Cotter? She asked. It's bad for children, said old Cotter, because their minds are so impressionable. When children see things like that, you know, it has an effect. I crammed my mouth with stirabout for fear I might give utterance to my anger. Tiresome old red-nosed imbecile. It was late when I fell asleep. Though I was angry with old Cotter for alluding to me as a child, I puzzled my head to extract meaning from his unfinished sentences. In the dark of my room, I imagined that I saw again the heavy grey face of the paralytic. I drew the blankets over my head and tried to think of Christmas. But the grey face still followed me. It murmured, and I understood that it desired to confess something. I felt my soul receding into some pleasant and vicious region, and there again I found it waiting for me. It began to confess to me in a murmuring voice, and I wondered why it smiled continually and why the lips were so moist with spittle. But then I remembered that it had died of paralysis, and I felt that I too was smiling feebly as if to absolve the simoniac of his sin. The next morning after breakfast, I went down to look at the little house in Great Britain Street. It was an unassuming shop, registered under the vague name of Drapery. The drapery consisted mainly of children's booties and umbrellas, and on ordinary days a notice used to hang in the window saying, Umbrellas recovered. No notice was visible now, for the shutters were up. A crepe bouquet was tied to the door knocker with ribbon. Two poor women and a telegram boy were reading the card pinned on the crepe. I also approached and read. July 1st, 1895, the Reverend James Flynn, formerly of St. Catherine's Church, Mead Street, aged 65 years, R.I.P. The reading of the card persuaded me that he was dead, and I was disturbed to find myself a cheque. Had he not been dead, I would have gone into the little dark room behind the shop to find him sitting in his armchair by the fire, nearly smothered in his greatcoat. Perhaps my aunt would have given me a packet of high toast for him, and this present would have roused him from his stupefied doze. It was always I who emptied the packet into his black snuff-box, for his hands trembled too much to allow him to do this without spilling half the snuff about the floor. Even as he raised his large, trembling hand to his nose, little clouds of smoke dribbled through his fingers over the front of his coat. It may have been these constant showers of snuff which gave his ancient priestly garments their green, faded look, for the red handkerchief, blackened as it always was, 
with the snuff stains of a week with which he tried to brush away the fallen grains was quite inefficacious. I wished to go in and look at him, but I had not the courage to knock. I walked away slowly along the sunny side of the street, reading all the theatrical advertisements in the shop windows as I went. I found it strange that neither I nor the day seemed in a morning mood, and I felt even annoyed at discovering in myself a sensation of freedom, as if I had been freed from something by his death. I wondered at this, for, as my uncle had said the night before, he had taught me a great deal. He had studied in the Irish college in Rome, and he had taught me to pronounce Latin properly. He had told me stories about the catacombs and about Napoleon Bonaparte, and he had explained to me the meaning of the different ceremonies of the Mass and of the different vestments worn by the priest. Sometimes he had amused himself by putting difficult questions to me, asking me what one should do in certain circumstances, or whether such and such sins were mortal or venial or only imperfections. His question showed me how complex and mysterious were certain institutions of the church, which I had always regarded as the simplest acts. The duties of the priest towards the Eucharist and towards the secrecy of the confessional seemed so grave to me that I wondered how anybody had ever found in himself the courage to undertake them. And I was not surprised when he told me that the fathers of the church had written books as thick as the post office directory and as closely printed as the law notices in the newspaper, elucidating all these intricate questions. Often when I thought of this I could make no answer, or only a very foolish and halting one, upon which he used to smile and nod his head twice or thrice. Sometimes he used to put me through the responses of the Mass, which he had made me learn by heart, and, as I pattered, he used to smile pensively and nod his head, now and then pushing huge pinches of snuff up each nostril alternately. When he smiled, he used to uncover his big discoloured teeth and let his tongue lie upon his lower lip, a habit which had made me feel uneasy in the beginning of our acquaintance before I knew him well. As I walked along in the sun, I remembered old Cotter's words and tried to remember what had happened afterwards in the dream. I remembered that I had noticed long velvet curtains and a swinging lamp of antique fashion. I felt that I had been very far away, in some land where the customs were strange. In Persia, I thought. But I could not remember the end of the dream. In the evening, my aunt took me with her to visit the house of mourning. It was after sunset, but the window panes of the houses that looked to the west reflected the tawny gold of a great bank of clouds. Nanny received us in the hall, and as it would have been unseemly to have shouted at her, my aunt shook hands with her for all. The old woman pointed upwards interrogatively, and on my aunt's nodding, proceeded to toil up the narrow staircase before us, her bowed head being scarcely above the level of the banister rail. At the first landing she stopped and beckoned us forward encouragingly towards the open door of the dead room. My aunt went in, and the old woman, seeing that I hesitated to enter, began to beckon to me again repeatedly with her hand. 
I went in on tiptoe. The room through the lace end of the blind was suffused with dusky golden light, amid which the candles looked like pale, thin flames. He had been coffined. Nanny gave the lead, and we three knelt down at the foot of the bed. I pretended to pray, but I could not gather my thoughts because the old woman's mutterings distracted me. I noticed how clumsily her skirt was hooked at the back and how the heels of her cloth boots were trodden down all to one side. The fancy came to me that the old priest was smiling as he lay there in his coffin. But no. When we rose and went up to the head of the bed, I saw that he was not smiling. There he lay, solemn and copious, vested as for the altar, his large hands loosely retaining a chalice. His face was very truculent, grey and massive, with black cavernous nostrils, and circled by a scanty white fur. There was a heavy odour in the room, the flowers. We blessed ourselves and came away. In the little room downstairs, we found Eliza seated in his armchair in state. I groped my way towards my usual chair in the corner, while Nanny went to the sideboard and brought out a decanter of sherry and some wine glasses. She set these on the table and invited us to take a little glass of wine. Then, at her sister's bidding, she poured out the sherry into the glasses and passed them to us. She pressed me to take some cream crackers also, but I declined, because I thought I would make too much noise eating them. She seemed to be somewhat disappointed at my refusal and went over quietly to the sofa where she sat down behind her sister. No one spoke. We all gazed at the empty fireplace. My aunt waited until Eliza sighed and then said, Ah, well, he's gone to a better world. Eliza sighed again and bowed her head in assent. My aunt fingered the stem of her wine glass before sipping a little. Did he peacefully? She asked. Oh, quite peacefully, ma'am said Eliza. You couldn't tell when the breath went out of him. He had a beautiful death, God be praised. And everything? Father O'Rourke was in with him a Tuesday and anointed him and prepared him and all. He knew then? He was quite resigned. He looks quite resigned. That's just what the woman we had in to wash him said. She said he just looked as if he was asleep. He looked that peaceful and resigned. No one would think he'd make such a beautiful corpse. Yes, indeed, said my aunt. She sipped a little more from her glass and said, Well, Miss Flynn, at any rate, it must be a great comfort for you to know that you did all you could for him. You were both very kind to him, I must say. Eliza smoothed her dress over her knees. Ah, poor James. God knows we done all we could, as poor as we are. We wouldn't see him want anything while he was in it. Nanny had leaned her head against the sofa pillow and seemed about to fall asleep. There's poor Nanny, said Eliza, looking at her. She's wore out. All the work we had, she and me, getting in the woman to wash him and then laying him out and then the coffin and then arranging about the mass in the chapel. Only for Father O'Rourke, I don't know what we'd have done at all. It was him brought us all them flowers 
and them two candlesticks out of the chapel, and wrote out the notice for the Freeman's General, and took charge of all the papers for the cemetery and poor James's insurance. Wasn't that good of him? said my aunt. Eliza closed her eyes and shook her head slowly. Ah, there's no friends like the old friends, when all's said and done, no friends that a body can trust. Indeed, that's true. And I'm sure now that he's gone to his eternal reward, he won't forget you and all your kindness to him. Ah, poor James. He was no great trouble to us. You wouldn't hear him in the house any more than now. Still, I know he's gone and all to that. It's when it's all over that you'll miss him. I know that. I won't be bringing him in his cup of beef tea any more. Nor you, ma'am, sending him his snuff. Ah, poor James. She stopped as if she were communing with the past and then said shrewdly, Mind you, I noticed there was something queer coming over him latterly. Whenever I'd bring in his soup to him there, I'd find him with his briefly fallen to the floor, lying back in the chair and his mouth open. She laid a finger against her nose and frowned. Then she continued. But still and all, he kept on saying that before the summer was over, he'd go out for a drive one fine day just to see the old house again, where we were all born down in Irish town, and take me and Nanny with them. If we could only get one of them newfangled carriages that makes no noise, that Father O'Rourke told him about, then with the rheumatic wheels. For the day, cheap, he said, at Johnny Rush's over the way there, and drive out the three of us together of a Sunday evening. He had his mind set on that. Poor James. The Lord have mercy on his soul, said my aunt. Eliza took out her handkerchief and wiped her eyes with it. Then she put it back again in her pocket and gazed into the empty grate for some time without speaking. He was too scrupulous always. The duties of the priesthood was too much for him. And then his life was, you might say, crossed. Yes, he was a disappointed man. You could see that. A silence took possession of the little room. And under cover of it, I approached the table and tasted my sherry and then returned quietly to my chair in the corner. Eliza seemed to have fallen into a deep reverie. We waited respectfully for her to break the silence. And after a long pause, she said slowly, It was that chalice he broke. That was the beginning of it. Of course, they say it was all right. That it contained nothing, I mean. But still, they say it was the boy's fault. But poor James was so nervous. God be merciful to him. And was that it? I heard something. Eliza nodded. That affected his mind. After that he began to mope by himself, talking to no one and wandering about by himself. So one night he was wanted for to go on a call and they couldn't find him anywhere. They looked high up and low down and still they couldn't see a sight of him anywhere. So then the clerk suggested to try the chapel. So then they got the keys and opened the chapel. 
and the clerk and Father O'Rourke and another priest that was there brought in a light for to look for him. And what do you think? But there he was, sitting up by himself in the dark in his confession box, wide awake and laughing like softly to himself. She stopped suddenly as if to listen. I too listened, but there was no sound in the house. And I knew that the old priest was lying still in his coffin as we had seen him, solemn and truculent in death, an idle chalice on his breast. Eliza resumed. Wide awake and laughing like to himself. So then, of course, when they saw that, that made them think that there was something gone wrong with them. That was The Sisters, the opening story of James Joyce's Dubliners. Patrick Dawson narrated Stephen Dedalus. Old Cotter was Brendan Caldwell. Brown Don O'Doul played the uncle. Barbara McCaughey, the aunt. And Eliza was played by Peg Monaghan. The producer was William Stiles. Two boys go mitching on a June day. As the day progresses and memories of school and home fade, a chance meeting with a strange man turns a bright day very dark. This is An Encounter. It was Joe Dillon who introduced the Wild West to us. He had a little library made up of old numbers of the Union Jack, Pluck and the Hapney Marvel. Every evening after school we met in his back garden and arranged Indian battles. He and his fat young brother Leo the Idler held the loft of the stable while we tried to carry it by storm or we fought a pitched battle on the grass. But however well we fought, we never won siege or battle, and all our bouts ended with Joe Dillon's war dance of victory. His parents went to eight o'clock mass every morning on Gardner Street, and the peaceful odour of Mrs Dillon was prevalent in the hall of the house. But he played too fiercely for us who were younger and more timid. He looked like some kind of an Indian when he capered round the garden, an old tea cosy on his head, beating a tin with his fist and yelling... Everyone was incredulous when it was reported that he had a vocation for the priesthood. Nevertheless, it was true. A spirit of unruliness diffused itself among us, and under its influence, differences of culture and constitution were waived. We banded ourselves together, some boldly, some in jest, and some almost in fear. And of the number of these latter, the reluctant Indians who were afraid to seem studious or lacking in robustness, I was one. The adventures related in the literature of the Wild West were remote from my nature, but at least they opened doors of escape. I liked better some American detective stories, which were traversed from time to time by unkempt, fierce and beautiful girls. Though there was nothing wrong in these stories, and though their intention was sometimes literary, they were circulated secretly at school. One day, when Father Butler was hearing the four pages of Roman history, clumsy Leo Dillon was discovered with a copy of the Hapney Marvel. This page or this page? This page? No. Dylan, up. Hardly had the day. Go on. What day? Hardly had the day done. Have you studied it? 
What have you there in your pocket? Everyone's heart palpitated as Leo Dillon handed up the paper and everyone assumed an innocent face. Father Butler turned over the pages, frowning. What is this rubbish? He said. The Apache Chief! Is this what you read instead of studying your Roman history? Let me not find any more of this wretched stuff in this college. The man who wrote it, I suppose, was some wretched scribbler that writes these things for a drink. I'm surprised at boys like you, educated, reading such stuff. I could understand it if you were national schoolboys. Now, Dylan, I advise you strongly. Get at your work, or... This rebuke during the sober hours of school paled much of the glory of the Wild West for me, and the confused, puffy face of Leo Dillon awakened one of my consciences. But when the restraining influence of the school was at a distance, I began to hunger again for wild sensations, for the escape which those chronicles of disorder alone seemed to offer me. The mimic warfare of the evening became at last as wearisome to me as the routine of school in the morning, because I wanted real adventures to happen to myself. But real adventures, I reflected, do not happen to people who remain at home. They must be sought abroad. The summer holidays were near at hand, when I made up my mind to break out of the weariness of school life, for one day at least. With Leo Dillon and a boy named Mahony, I planned a day's mitching. Each of us saved up sixpence. We were to meet at ten in the morning on the canal bridge. Mahony's big sister was to write an excuse for him, and Leo Dillon was to tell his brother to say he was sick. We arranged to go along the wharf road until we came to the ships, then to cross in the ferry boat and walk out to see the pigeon house. Leo Dillon was afraid we might meet Father Butler or someone out of the college, but Mahony asked, very sensibly, what would Father Butler be doing out at the pigeon house? We were reassured, and I brought the first stage of the plot to an end by collecting sixpence from the other two, at the same time showing them my own sixpence. When we were making the last arrangements on the eve, we were all vaguely excited. We shook hands laughing, and Mahony said, Till tomorrow, mates. That night, I slept badly. In the morning, I was first comer to the bridge as I lived nearest. I hid my books in the long grass near the ash pit at the end of the garden where nobody ever came and hurried along the canal bank. It was a mild, sunny morning in the first week of June. I sat up on the coping of the bridge, admiring my frail canvas shoes, which I had diligently pipe-clayed overnight, and watching the docile horses pulling a tramload of business people up the hill. All the branches of the tall trees which lined the mall were gay with little light green leaves, and the sunlight slanted through them onto the water. The granite stone of the bridge was beginning to be warm, and I began to pat it with my hands in time to an air in my head. I was very happy. When I had been sitting there for five or ten minutes, I saw Mahony's grey suit approaching. He came up the hill, smiling, and clambered up beside me on the bridge. While we were waiting, he brought out the catapult which bulged from his inner pocket and explained some improvements which he had made in it. I asked him why he had brought it, and he told me he had brought it to have some gas with the birds. Mahony used slang freely and spoke of Father Butler as Bunsen Burner. We waited on for a quarter of an hour more, but still there was no sign of Leo Dillon. 
Mahoney at last jumped down and said, Come along. I knew Fatty had funk it. And his sixpence. I said. That's forfeit, said Mahoney. And so much the better for us. A bob and a tanner instead of a bob. We walked along the North Strand Road till we came to the vitriol works and then turned to the right along the wharf road. Mahoney began to play the Indian as soon as we were out of public sight. He chased a crowd of ragged girls, brandishing his unloaded catapult, and when two ragged boys began out of chivalry to fling stones at us, he proposed that we should charge them. I objected that the boys were too small, and so we walked on, the ragged troop screaming after us, thinking that we were Protestants, because Mahoney, who was dark-complexioned, wore the silver badge of a cricket club in his cap. When we came to the smoothing iron, we arranged a siege, but it was a failure, because you must have at least three. We revenged ourselves on Leo Dillon by saying what a funk he was and guessing how many he would get at three o'clock from Mr. Ryan. We came then near the river. We spent a long time walking about the noisy streets flanked by high stone walls, watching the working of cranes and engines and often being shouted at for our immobility by the drivers of groaning carts. It was noon when we reached the quays and, as all the labourers seemed to be eating their lunches, we bought two big currant buns and sat down to eat them on some metal piping beside the river. We pleased ourselves with the spectacle of Dublin's commerce, the barges signalled from far away by their curls of woolly smoke, the brown fishing fleet beyond Ring's End, the big white sailing vessel which was being discharged on the opposite quay. Mahoney said it would be right skit to run away to sea in one of those big ships, and even I, looking at the high masts, saw or imagined the geography which had been scantily dosed to me at school, gradually taking substance under my eyes. School and home seemed to recede from us, and their influences upon us seemed to wane. We crossed the Liffey in the ferry boat, paying our toll to be transported in the company of two labourers and a little Jew with a bag. We were serious to the point of solemnity, but once during the short voyage our eyes met and we laughed. When we landed, we watched the discharging of the graceful three-master which we had observed from the other quay. Some bystander said that she was a Norwegian vessel. I went to the stern and tried to decipher the legend upon it, but failing to do so, I came back and examined with the foreign sailors to see had any of them green eyes, for I had some confused notion. The sailors' eyes were blue and grey and even black. The only sailor whose eyes could have been called green was a tall man who amused the crowd on the quay by calling out cheerfully every time the planks fell. All right! All right! When we were tired of this sight, we wandered slowly into Ring's End. The day had grown sultry, and in the windows of the grocer's shops, musty biscuits lay bleaching. We bought some biscuits and chocolate, which we ate sedulously, as we wandered through the squalid streets where the families of the fishermen live. We could find no dairy, and so we went into a huckster's shop and bought a bottle of raspberry lemonade each. Refreshed by this, Mahoney chased a cat down a lane, but the cat escaped into a wide field. We both felt rather tired, and when we reached the field, we made it once for a sloping bank over the ridge of which we could see the daughter. It was too late, and we were too tired to carry out our project of visiting the pigeon house. We had to be home before four o'clock, lest our adventure should be discovered.
Mahony looked regretfully at his catapult, and I had to suggest going home by train before he regained any cheerfulness. The sun went in behind some clouds and left us to our jaded thoughts and the crumbs of our provisions. There was nobody but ourselves in the field. When we had lain on the bank for some time without speaking, I saw a man approaching from the far end of the field. I watched him lazily as I chewed one of those green stems on which girls tell fortunes. He came along by the bank slowly. He walked with one hand upon his hip, and in the other hand he held a stick, with which he tapped the turf lightly. He was shabbily dressed in a suit of greenish-black, and wore what we used to call a jerry hat with a high crown. He seemed to be fairly old, for his moustache was ashen grey. When he passed at our feet, he glanced up at us quickly and then continued his way. We followed him with our eyes, and saw that when he had gone on for perhaps fifty paces, he turned about and began to retrace his steps. He walked towards us very slowly, always tapping the ground with his stick, so slowly that I thought he was looking for something in the grass. He stopped when he came level with us and bade us good day. We answered him, and he sat down beside us on the slope slowly and with great care. He began to talk of the weather, saying that it would be a very hot summer, and adding that the seasons had changed greatly since he was a boy, a long time ago. He said that the happiest time of one's life was undoubtedly one's schoolboy days, and that he would give anything to be young again. While he expressed these sentiments, which bored us a little, we kept silent. Then he began to talk of school and of books. He asked us whether we had read the poetry of Thomas Moore or the works of Sir Walter Scott and Lord Lytton. I pretended that I had read every book he mentioned, so that in the end he said, Ah, I can see you are a bookworm like myself. Now, he added, pointing to Mahony, who was regarding us with open eyes. He is different. He goes in for games. He said he had all Sir Walter Scott's works and all Lord Lytton's works at home and never tired of reading them. Of course, he said, there were some of Lord Lytton's works which boys couldn't read. Mahoney asked why couldn't boys read them, a question which agitated and pained me because I was afraid the man would think I was as stupid as Mahoney. The man, however, only smiled. I saw that he had great gaps in his mouth between his yellow teeth. Then he asked us which of us had the most sweethearts. Mahony mentioned lightly that he had three totties. The man asked me how many had I. I answered that I had none. He did not believe me and said he was sure I must have one. I was silent. Tell us, said Mahony pertly to the man. How many have you yourself? The man smiled as before and said that when he was our age he had lots of sweethearts. Every boy, he said, has a little sweetheart. His attitude on this point struck me as strangely liberal in a man of his age. In my heart I thought that what he said about boys and sweethearts was reasonable, but I disliked the words in his mouth, and I wondered why he shivered once or twice, as if he feared something or felt a sudden chill. As he proceeded, I noticed that his accent was good, he began to speak to us about girls, saying what nice, soft hair they had, and how soft their hands were, and how all girls were not so good as they seemed to be, if one only knew. 
There was nothing he liked, he said, so much as looking at a nice young girl, at her nice white hands and her beautiful soft hair. He gave me the impression that he was repeating something which he had learned by heart or that, magnetised by some words of his own speech, his mind was slowly circling round and round in the same orbit. At times he spoke, as if he were simply alluding to some fact that everybody knew, and at times he lowered his voice and spoke mysteriously, as if he were telling us something secret which he did not wish others to overhear. He repeated his phrases over and over again, varying them and surrounding them with his monotonous voice. I continued to gaze towards the foot of the slope, listening to him. After a long while, his monologue paused. He stood up slowly, saying that he had to leave us for a minute or so. A few minutes, and without changing the direction of my gaze, I saw him walking slowly away from us towards the near end of the field. We remained silent when he had gone. After a silence of a few minutes, I heard Mahoney exclaim, I say, look what he's doing. As I neither answered nor raised my eyes, Mahoney exclaimed again, I say, he's a queer old josser. In case he asks us for our names, let you be Murphy and I'll be Smith. We said nothing further to each other. I was still considering whether I would go away or not when the man came back and sat down beside us again. Hardly had he sat down when Mahoney, catching sight of the cat which had escaped him, sprang up and pursued her across the field. The man and I watched the chase. The cat escaped once more and Mahoney began to throw stones at the wall she had escalated. Desisting from this, he began to wander about the far end of the field aimlessly. After an interval, the man spoke to me. He said that my friend was a very rough boy and asked, did he get whipped often at school? I was going to reply indignantly that we were not national school boys to be whipped, as he called it, but I remained silent. He began to speak on the subject of chastising boys. His mind, as if magnetised again by his speech, seemed to circle slowly round and round its new centre. He said that when boys were that kind, they ought to be whipped, and well whipped. When a boy was rough and unruly, there was nothing would do him any good but a good, sound whipping. A slap on the hand or a box on the ear was no good. What he wanted was to get a nice, warm whipping. I was surprised at this sentiment and involuntarily glanced up at his face. As I did so, I met the gaze of a pair of bottle-green eyes peering at me from under a twitching forehead. I turned my eyes away again. The man continued his monologue. He seemed to have forgotten his recent liberalism. He said that if ever he found a boy talking to girls or having a girl for a sweetheart, he would whip him and whip him and that would teach him not to be talking to girls. And if a boy had a girl for his sweetheart and told lies about it, then he would give him such a whipping as no boy ever got in this world. He said there was nothing in this world he would like so well as that. He described to me how he would whip such a boy as if he were unfolding some elaborate mystery. He would love that, he said, better than anything in this world and his voice, as he led me monotonously through the mystery, grew almost affectionate and seemed to plead with me that I should understand him. 
I waited till his monologue paused again. Then I stood up abruptly, lest I should betray my agitation. I delayed a few moments, pretending to fix my shoe properly, and then, saying that I was obliged to go, I bade him good day. I went up the slope calmly, but my heart was beating quickly with fear that he would seize me by the ankles. When I reached the top of the slope, I turned round and, without looking at him, called loudly across the field, My voice had an accent of forced bravery in it, and I was ashamed of my paltry stratagem. I had to call the name again before Mahony saw me and hallowed in answer. How my heart beat as he came running across the field to me. He ran as if to bring me aid, and I was penitent, for in my heart I had always despised him a little. That was An Encounter. Joe Taylor narrated Stephen Dedalus. Lawrence Foster was Father Butler. And The Man was played by Seamus Ford. Other parts were played by members of the RTE Radio Aaron Players. The producer was William Stiles.